Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is episode two. Here is a snippet from today's guest. But diet's the kingpin. There is no debate about that. Diet is the kingpin where chronic diseases are concerned. We see athletes who drop dead of a heart attack because they've got severe atherosclerosis because they're eating garbage. And so I get very, very concerned when people start talking about diets that are very meat-centered and very high fat. That was world-renowned nutritionist Brenda Davis. Thanks to all of you who have subscribed to my podcast and who have also left iTunes reviews. That helps out a lot in the searchability of the podcast. And also share it with your friends. I'm happy to help out in any way that I can, and I love sharing all these great stories with you guys. Today's topic is something that's very near and dear to my heart, literally. And it's something that I'm so interested in that I spend time every single day doing research and that is plant-based nutrition. So back before I changed my diet, I kind of felt like I didn't know where to turn. I was looking at things like the paleo diet or just anything I could find about weight loss, sports performance, longevity, but everything I found just didn't really work. And I was also a little bit worried about some of the results because it just didn't seem healthy to me. So when I finally found the plant-based diet through Forks Over Knives, I decided to do my own research and I highly recommend doing that, especially when considering making any changes to something in your life. Number one, you have to do it for you. And number two, you need to understand why. And I think that a big issue is that a lot of times people don't think about the long-term health implications of some of the things that they're trying with their diets. Like if you're changing your diet to perform better or lose weight, you might accomplish those things, but it's important to think big picture. What is the long-term effects of what you're doing to your body? And for me, disease prevention was number one on my list. I don't want to die of cancer or heart disease prematurely. And someone's kid asked me recently, like, why do you eat that way? And I said, I didn't mean to be so blunt with her, but I I just blurted out because I don't want to die prematurely of a disease. So I got this book called Becoming Vegan, and it's a textbook, basically, that is amazing. And it has so much information, chapter by chapter, with all these peer-reviewed, evidence-based research studies cited in the book. And each chapter has very interesting information. So, like, there's a chapter about vegan athletes and the caloric needs of a vegan athlete even sample menus of what to eat as a vegan athlete, which is something that a lot of people actually ask me. So it's really helpful to have that as a resource. And there's chapters on nutrition for seniors, nutrition for pregnancy and lactation, everything you could possibly want to know about vitamins and minerals and how to get them, and carbs, fats, proteins, anything you want. And it's just such a great resource to have. So I started doing a little bit more delving into this, and I found out that the author of this book, Brenda Davis, lives in my town, Kelowna, British Columbia. And I was ecstatic because I found that out right around the time when I wanted to start this podcast. So I contacted Brenda, and she is a wonder woman. She was in Saudi Arabia consulting with the prince, and then at a lifestyle medicine conference in Lithuania, 
And finally, we were both in town at exactly the same time. So that was absolutely fantastic. I learned a lot of new things about Brenda Davis as I was doing a little bit more research about her. Like in 2007, she was inducted into the Vegetarian Hall of Fame. She's authored nine books with over 750,000 copies in print in 10 languages. She's received tons of different awards and she's spoken in over a dozen countries at international nutrition, medical and health conferences. And she also loves the outdoors, and she even mountain bikes a little bit, so I gotta get Brenda out on the mountain bike. In our chat, we discussed all kinds of fun things like her professional journey, protein and how much you need depending on if you're sedentary, if you're an athlete, or if you're a senior, soy and busting some of the myths around soy and is soy good for you, and what kinds of soy products should you eat if you're eating soy, blue zones, disease prevention for cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, some of the exciting new research that's come out, and her trip to Saudi Arabia, which was just mind-blowingly interesting. Let's get into it. It is my honor to bring to you Brenda Davis. Welcome, Brenda Davis. Thank you so much for coming over for a visit. I had no idea that you lived in Kelowna. (laughs) And what a treat that you live in the same town as me. Well, thanks so much, Sonia. It's really nice to be here. And I'm really excited about what you're doing. And it's nice that you're here as well. So yeah, I found your book when I changed my diet four years ago and becoming vegan and recently updated to the comprehensive edition. Right. And that's been just an incredible resource to have so much information. Oh, thanks so much. That was a labor of love for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So what inspired you to write that book? Well, you know, I started writing back in 1994, came out with the first book called Becoming Vegetarian. And at that time, you know, I went through dietetics in the 70s. And in the 1970s, being vegetarian was considered risky. Being vegan was just considered downright dangerous. And so you can imagine someone coming from that type of education. (laughs) I was a public health nutritionist. So all of my nutrition education materials were based on Canada's food guide, which is four food groups, two of which are (laughs) animal-based. And so as a dietitian, I had actually never even met any real live vegans in my life. And I became pretty much vegan almost 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, My kids were very young and I made the decision because of, um, I would say really ethical issues. I figured, first of all, I started learning about how we were raising animals, about the ecological consequences of our food choices. And I thought to myself, I don't know exactly what I need to do in this lifetime, but I know that I don't want to contribute to pain and suffering and death and other beings if I don't have to. And I don't have to. And I thought, as human beings, we should be smart enough to be able to figure out how to acquire a reasonable food supply without, you know, destroying the planet, causing incomprehensible suffering to other creatures. And I thought, you know, if I don't have the courage to stand up and do what I think is ethically right, who will? I think we really have to live what we believe. And so I, it was funny, I actually went to my husband who, you know, we'd been married about 10 years at that time. This was the late 80s. And I said to my husband, um, 
I would like to become a vegetarian. We lived in Northern Ontario and Northern Ontario is basically hunting fishing territory. And he grew up hunting and fishing and all his friends, you know, that was their big pastime. And, and his response to me just shocked me. He said, I thought you'd never ask. Wow. And I was just stunned because we, like I said, we didn't know any real life vegetarians. And, <laughs> they and actually so, live and breathe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I was really stunned. And he said, you know, he said, from the time I was a little kid, the thing that's always been most important to me is to leave a, a softer footprint on the planet. And, you know, he went through biology and stuff in university. And he said, I know that eating plant-based will leave a much softer footprint. And so he said, I'd love to be vegetarian. And so I thought, wow, did I pick right or what? Yeah, that was easy. <laughs> that was easy. Wasn't so easy with our parents, mind you. Neither yeah. one of them were, especially with little kids. They were terrified that our kids were going to be stunted or, you know, whatever. <laughs> they were quite concerned, but... But anyway, I was a dietitian. I kind of, you know, had the tools to know what I was doing. I knew where to get the resources and all of that. So yeah. that's how I started. And, you know, this first book we wrote in 1994 and the dairy industry took out a, wrote a 45 page rebuttal to our book because we wow. had a chapter called Without Dairy and they tried to, you know, give it to free to every health professional in the country to try to discredit us. And But we were a national bestseller within nine months. And that was the first book. And then it, it uh, we U.S. publisher picked it up. And then we just continued writing. And so um, the first Becoming Vegan, I think it was 2000, we wrote that one. And then, of course, you know, 14, 15 years later, it's time to do a new, you know, a, an updated version. Because you just can't imagine how fast nutrition science changes and how much we learn in a year, let alone 14 years. So Becoming Vegan, our publisher said, you know... Um, we want something that's accessible to people and easy to read and so forth. But we recognize also that health professionals need resources as well. So the decision was made to write two books. So mm -hmm. we have this comprehensive that's all fully referenced, a little more detailed. And then we have this express edition for people that just want to read what to do and and uh, why. And that's the way we did it. And it's, yeah, it's... Uh, it's great. We're still my my writing partner, Vasanto, is now seventy five years old. Wow! And she still works full time plus, and of course, so do I. And it's all good. Yeah, I think when you love what you do, it's it's easy to keep going. And it sure is when you're changing lives, which yeah. you are. And yeah, something I really loved about becoming vegan was it had a whole section for athletes, and it also had meal plans. And a lot of times, people will email me and ask me, "What should I? How do I start? Or what what should my meals even look like?" And I yeah. think that having that backbone for people to start with, especially to eat a whole foods plant based diet. A lot of people think that a plant-based diet is, or a whole foods plant-based diet includes all the processed vegan foods, which, what do you think about those? Are, are those healthy for you? Well, it depends. So food processing can happen at various levels. So very lightly processed foods might be something like organic soy milk, where you've, you know, you're using whole organic soybeans to make the milk or organic uh, tofu, which is a fairly simple process to make. So those are processed foods. Anything that you're preparing, you make us buy a salad that's bagged and ready to go. It's, 
you know, it's lightly processed food. There's a big difference between those kinds of lightly processed foods or even nut butters or whatever than there is to these sort of convenient um, packaged meal in a bag kind of things. So there's, or, or potato chips or candy, or there's such uh, layers of processing. And so what we want to do mainly is avoid the very heavily processed foods. And, and I think we don't want to overwhelm people because this is, it's like, you know, jumping into an ocean that you're completely unfamiliar with. And to say, well, you can't use anything that's kind of ready to go. So there's no, you know, don't use cashew milk or tofu or any of that stuff. We don't want to do that because it makes it too scary for people, too difficult. So what we want to do is say, use whole foods as much as possible, but it's okay to have a few of these foods that make life easier. And so that's sort of my way of, of uh, advising people. But I have to say from a personal perspective, I've been doing this for 30 years. And so I do almost everything from scratch. So if I want vegan cheese, I make fermented vegan cheese. If I want crackers, I do dehydrated flax and you know, sunflower and pumpkin seed crackers. And I, so I'm doing everything from scratch myself, but I don't expect necessarily that somebody becoming vegan overnight is going to know automatically they're going to be in university. They're in kindergarten. <laughs> and so they need some support systems in place. And it takes a while to develop all of these skills to be able to do everything from scratch. And the other thing is not everybody is that handy in the kitchen or even wants to be that right, handy in the right. kitchen. So we have to make it so that it's doable. And especially when you're an athlete who's training three or four hours a day or more in some cases, you know, you're going to do some things that'll save you a little bit of time and that's okay. Even veggie meats. So you look at these prepared burgers, for example. There's so many different categories. There's some that are very highly processed. There are some that are made with black beans and quinoa. So you can choose some of the better products. The other thing is even within the, you know, products that are made from soy protein isolates, for example, where they're really quite highly processed, there's even layers there. For example, the ones that are sort of the conventional soy burgers or whatever, often the soy is extracted using a chemical called hexane. And hexane's a neurotoxin. And, you know, the deal is it's probably most of it is gone with, you know, the way that they process it. There's not a lot left. But we don't know how damaging just trace amounts of this stuff can be. So it's probably better to avoid it. So if you actually purchase organic soy burgers, for example, you're not going to have to worry about the hexane. You know, and the, the reality is for some people, they're going to want some sort of concentrated protein if they're an athlete. So they might use some sort of protein powder in their smoothie or, or they might use some of these burgers or something like that. And I think that they can have a place in the diet if they're not overused and if most of what you're eating is whole plant foods. So you want most of your, your sort of legume group to actually be legumes <laughs> rather than these burgers or, you know, veggie meats or whatever. Yeah, so basically, if you're going to pick veggie burgers or hot dogs or whatever, pick something that has the smallest amount of ingredients possible yeah. and choose an organic product. Exactly. You've got it. Yeah. And yeah. speaking of protein, I mean, this is the most common question amongst people looking to change to a plant-based or vegan diet, yeah. particularly among athletes, 
is how much protein do you need? And I think that we don't need the amount of protein that the media and all the magazines have made it look like. And personally, I mean, I race my bike for five to eight hours at a time and sometimes seven days in a row of that. And it's important to get the right amount of nutrients, but I certainly don't have any trouble building muscle. I mean, I actually have to do pay attention to how much extra, like if I do any weightlifting or pushups, I pack on muscle really fast. So I know that even I get around 70 grams of protein and I'm about 130 pounds. And I think in your book, you recommend protein for people that aren't as active and then a protein recommendation for athletes. So what, what are those recommendations? Yeah, so basically, first of all, I think everybody should know that the biggest, strongest animals on the planet are vegetarian or vegan, basically. They might get some insects on the plants that they're eating. (laughs) But just think about it. An elephant is a vegetarian. They have huge muscles. Humans are puny by comparison. So if animals of that size can get enough protein from plants, people probably can too. And if you're curious, go to, there's a website called veganbodybuilding.com. And veganbodybuilding.com, you just, it kind of blows your mind when you look at these guys and, you know, the men and women that are world-class competitive bodybuilders and fitness competitors and so forth. It's inspiring. And so, of course, we can get enough protein from plants. The interesting thing also is that a lot of people don't realize there are these what we call indispensable or essential amino acids that we need to get. Uh, We can't make them, our bodies don't produce them, so we have to get them from food. And people think that you've got to eat animal products to get these essential amino acids. And in fact, essential amino acids are actually made by plants. They're not even made by animals. They're all made by plants. Animals get them because at some point along the food chain, they came from plants. And so it makes no sense to think we can't get them from plants. It's where they come from. You know, there are really two issues with protein, quantity and quality. And the quantity is what you were asking about is how much do we actually need? And the recommended, the RDA for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. Now for whole food plant-based eaters, you might want to increase that to 0.9 or even one gram per kilogram body weight. And the reason being is that the digestibility of protein in plant foods is slightly less. Some of it you're actually going to just excrete in your feces because of the fiber that binds it there. And so even though you've got a certain number of grams of protein, you might only get 85% of that from legumes, for example, whereas you'd get you know closer to 95% from tofu because there's less fiber there. So, and you'll get in the, you know, 95 or so percent range from most animal products as well. So there, and that's the other myth that no plant food contains protein quality the same as animal. And that's actually not true. Uh, Certainly soy foods like tofu and soybeans and edamame and the same quality of protein as you would get from animal foods. And then, so the amount for athletes, You know, athletes, it's so easy because basically athletes need more calories. And so when you eat a lot of calories to get that even one point, you know, we say 1.2 to 1.7 or so for, for athletes and especially endurance athletes. And for vegetarians, it might be 1.3 to 1.9 or vegans, I should say, just to allow for that digestibility, the difference in digestibility. But when you're an athlete, it's so easy to get that because you're eating 4,000 calories a day. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's like, yay. But for 
for seniors, it's a whole other story. And I want to mention that here because I know that for a lot of seniors, your protein requirements go up because the digestibility thing really starts to shift when the enzymes and the stomach acid change, you're not able to absorb as much. Some countries actually recommend 25% more protein for seniors than for younger people. And, you know, an athlete eating 4,000 calories a day get, you know, the amount of protein they need is just a breeze. But for a senior, they need, you know, say one gram of protein per kilogram body weight and they're consuming 1,600 calories, then it gets tricky. So they really have to focus more on the legume sort of food group. And uh, I have friends who actually, when they're preparing their grains in the morning, they do them half and half with lentils, for example, to give themselves a protein boost. There's lots of ways you can do it. But for athletes, it's just a no-brainer. If you get enough calories as an athlete, you're probably getting enough protein as well because you eat so many calories. But again, you know, I do get concerned about some people who are doing sort of a raw food diet where they're eating mostly fruit, for example. Fruit is just one of the foods. If you think about this, this is interesting. We need probably about 10 to 15% of our calories coming from protein. And most people get around, around that. It's not difficult to do. But if you look at the percent of calories from protein in foods, legumes are about 20 to 30% of calories from protein. Soy foods are about 38, you know, to 40. So they're even higher. If you look at uh, veggie meats, it's like, 50 to 70% of calories from protein. So so in the legume group, nuts and seeds and whole grains are about 10 to 17% of calories from protein. There are a few that are slightly lower, but that's sort of the average range. Vegetables, people are shocked, but it's, you know, non-starchy vegetables are about 20 to 40% of calories from protein. The only ones that aren't are the starchy vegetables, which are maybe eight to 12% of calories from protein. So they're much lower. The only category of foods that don't have as much protein are the fruits. They're about one to 10% of calories from protein. So they fall a little below that sort of 10 to 15% range. But if you're eating fruits and you're eating all the other foods with 20 or 30% of calories from protein, it all comes together. The average vegan gets probably 11 or 12 to maybe 15 or 16% of their calories from protein, which is really bang on. You don't want, as a matter of, you don't want to be getting necessarily 20% plus. As a matter of fact, there was a study 2014 by Levine. I think it was in cell metabolism, but anyway, they actually looked at disease rates based on your sort of percent of calories from protein. And what they found was people that were consuming 20% plus of calories from protein had hugely increased mortality, diabetes rates, cancer rates. They were increased by four or 500%. Oh. Heart disease, it was really quite shocking. But if that protein came from plants, it wiped out any of those ill effects. It was only protein from animals that, that were associated with those huge increases in risk. Now for seniors, it didn't hold true. As a matter of fact, seniors were at an advantage with 20% of calories from protein, except for diabetes, their rates increased like tenfold. But for other things, they were at a bit of an advantage. And that is again, because if a guy is eating 2,800 calories, well, 20% of calories from protein would probably be about 140 grams of protein. But a senior who's eating 1,600 calories, 20% of calories from protein would be about 80 grams of protein. 
And that's bang on what a senior needs when they're we're looking at a 25% increase in, in sort of what they probably should be getting. So that's why, you know, when you look at total calories from protein and how much is coming in. But yeah, it's an easy thing to do if you're an athlete, that's for sure. Yeah, and there's this idea of complete protein. And I, I think I heard something that Dr. Greger said about the only incomplete protein out there is gelatin. Yeah. So, and, and people say you need to combine foods to create a complete protein. Yeah. Now, what is that? A you myth? know that? Well, it started back in the 70s with Francis Morlepay wrote a book called Diet for a Small Planet. And it was a fantastic book. She did an excellent job. But she actually looked carefully at the amino acid profiles of different foods and compared to the, what we call the provisional sort of essential amino acid profile of what a human needs per gram of protein consumed. So this is a little bit tricky, but for every gram of protein you eat, you need a certain amount of lysine and, you know, methionine and cysteine and so on. Now that is if, say you need 50 grams of protein and you're only getting 50 grams of protein, then every gram would need to have that amount. If you're getting 70 grams of protein, you only need 50, then you wouldn't need quite that much for every gram. But that gets a little, a little bit technical. But basically what happened is she, she figured that um, because grains are a little bit low in lysine and legumes can be a little bit low in methionine and cysteine, if you ate the two together, you would get all of the amino acids you require. And it just made absolute sense. Everybody latched onto it and thought, okay, we just need to complement our proteins. But what we learned within probably 10 years of her doing that was that we actually have pools of protein, amino acids, I should say, in our bodies. So let's say, for example, all you eat is toast for breakfast and you don't get enough lysine. You pull the lysine out of your protein pools and you build the proteins you need based on what's stored in your protein pools. If all you eat is lentil soup for lunch, you, you know, borrow from the methionine you've stored from your toast at breakfast. So basically we learned fairly rapidly that if you're eating a variety of foods over the course of a day and you get enough protein, you don't really have to worry about complementing them because they complement themselves naturally and we store any excesses from each meal. It gets a little trickier with small children who are barely meeting their protein needs. Then we need to be a little bit more conscious. We don't need to complement proteins as such, but we do need to make sure that they get enough of the amino acid that tends to be limiting when people are just barely getting enough protein, and that's lysine. And lysine is most concentrated in our, the legume family. So beans and peas and lentils and, you know, chickpeas and all of those foods, we want to make sure little kids are getting some of those uh, regularly during the the day so that they get enough amino acids to build the body tissues they need to build. Yeah, so basically you just need to eat a variety of different types of plant foods. That's right. And you, then you don't have to worry at all no, about being no. deficient it's, in some It's a myth. Acid. And as a matter of fact, Frances Morlepay, who wrote the book 10 years later, I think she did an update where she actually said, we now know you don't have to do this. Uh, but it's so funny how that myth just hung on in spite of her coming out and saying, you know, we've got new science and here's what it says. But it, the myth just lingers. It's just incredible. But we've known for probably 25, 30 years that you don't have to do that. And 
we were talking about soy and I've had people ask me, well, I've heard bad things about soy. And I think that in the media, soy has kind of been made out to be the bad guy saying, yeah. oh, the phytoestrogens are going to sit in the place of human estrogen and you're, you're going to not produce it anymore. But a lot of things I've read say that soy actually helps prevent breast cancer and soy is actually very good for you. Yeah, so the whole soy thing is very interesting. I don't know if there's any other food that's been studied as much as soy. We have literally truckloads of evidence about soy. But I'll tell you, just to get people thinking, for me, there's an acid test to do for every question that comes up like that. And this acid test is, what do the people in the blue zones do? Because we've got five blue zones. And for people that have never heard of blue zones, blue zones are places in the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. So not only do they have more centenarians or people that live to be 100 than anywhere else on the planet, these people in their 90s and 100 years of age are actually still productive. They're still gardening, they're still hiking, they're still doing things. And that's what's so amazing about the blue zone. And so often when people ask questions like this, I say, hmm, I wonder how it is in these places where people live to be 100 and are still healthy. They don't have dementia, they don't have heart disease, they don't have diabetes, like what's going on? And in fact, two of the five blue zones consume about two servings of soy a day. So to me, if soy was the big poison that it's being made out to be by the Weston A. Price Foundation, I doubt that they would be the longest lived, healthiest people on the planet. They would probably be short lived. <laughs> uh, so the Okinawans consumed an average of two servings of soy a day. And no, it wasn't fermented soy necessarily. It was for miso, but not for tofu, which they used. The Seventh-day Adventists use soy in every, you know, way imaginable. They use veggie meats, they use, you know, soy beans a lot, they use soy milk, and they still are among the healthiest, longest-lived people on the planet. So I think that that's just to know that. Then to really take a look at the phytoestrogens in soy and what does the research say? And Well, basically, the phytoestrogens in soy are what we know as selective estrogen receptor modulators or serums. And these serums actually attach with different kinds of estrogen receptor sites and they attach to some estrogen receptor sites differently than others or more efficiently than others. And in some estrogen receptors, they act like weak estrogens. In others, they act like anti-estrogens. And in breast tissue, it seems that they act like anti-estrogens. So what we know about breast cancer and soy is that people who consume soy as children and adolescents have a very significantly reduced lifetime risk of breast cancer. Um, we also know that women, is, so we see differences in Asians and in Americans in terms of breast cancer risk and soy consumption because Asians start to eat soy as little kids and as adolescents. And in America, a lot of people start becoming vegetarian or whatever, they start increasing their soy intake in adulthood and they didn't have much as children. And so the differences in breast cancer rates are still fairly significant between the two populations. But what we also know is that people who have breast cancer, who eat soy, have very significantly reduced risk of recurrence of the breast cancer, and they have less mortality when they consume soy, even if they're taking tamoxifen. 
So soy, it seems to be very protective. There was an, a study recently done in, uh, was it uh, Korea, I believe, that looked at BRCA1 and BRCA2 carriers. So people with these genetic mutations, putting them at higher risk for breast cancer. People that consumed the highest amounts of meat had a 197% increased risk of breast cancer. And the people that consumed the most soy, they were consuming four to five servings a day, had a 62 or 63% reduced risk of breast cancer. It was really quite astounding. So the soy in that case was very, very protective. So what we know is soy in childhood and adolescence, soy consumption protects against breast cancer for sort of reduces lifetime risk. Soy consumption in breast cancer, soy consumers reduces risk of mortality and morbidity and, and reduces risk of recurrence. So those are really positive findings. And the other thing is the uh, studies on prostate cancer are astounding. Most of them are looking at about a th the regular soy consumers, 30% reduced risk of, of prostate cancer. And in high risk, people at really high risk for prostate cancer, 50% risk reduction. So really, again, and soy reduces risk of uh, heart disease. It reduces risk of possibly of diabetes. It reduces risk for sure of kidney disease. There's a little, some suggestion it may be protective to bones. We don't know for sure. Reduces uh, some of the symptoms of menopause for some women. So there are some very significant positive effects. When you replace meat with soy, you get all kinds of advantages. So, but then again, all soy is not created equal. And so there are some very highly processed soy foods and some less processed soy foods. And we often talk about first generation soy foods being the less processed soy foods. When we look at the research in Asia, in Asia, most of the soy comes in the form of tofu, tempeh, miso, soy milk. These are the common foods, they're edamame. And so those, you know, are really great choices. And I prefer to use organic. And then, you know, sort of we can look at there's all kinds of soy ice creams and soy meats and soy cheeses and so on and so forth. The one thing I would probably steer clear of is the soy cheeses, because most of the ones I've seen have all kinds of horrible fats added, like hydrogenated oils and just not not great stuff. I personally prefer the nut cheeses, which are fermented and sort of use the same process you would use to make dairy cheese and they taste good. So basically that's in a nutshell. And how much soy? Well, soy has these phytoestrogens, which can in some tissues act as weak estrogens. And there were, there, you know, a lot of men get concerned that they're going to get feminization if they consume soy. Well, there were two case studies that showed feminization in men with soy consumption. In one of them, I think the guy was eating 14 servings a day. And in the other, the guy was eating 18 to 20 servings a day. So that's too much. <laughs> There's no question. That's too much. So for adults, an intake of probably two to four servings a day is quite reasonable and is quite in line with what, you know, we see in the blue zones. Uh, for children, it's less because you're looking at very tiny little bodies. And so for children, one or two servings a day is probably at most. Now, that having been said, veggie meats don't really count because they don't have near the isoflavone content. The isoflavones have been largely eliminated by the processing. So you can not worry so much about the veggie burgers in that regard.
Yeah, this concept of food as medicine and using food instead of pharmaceuticals to help prevent disease processes and to take better care of your body was kind of a newer concept to me whenever I discovered the plant-based diet. I would read like women's health and, and websites saying, eat this and it'll help you be healthier here. But to have an entire lifestyle that helps prevent heart disease and cancer and blood pressure and Parkinson's and all these different diseases is kind of a concept that a lot of people haven't heard of before. And I think that it's something that we need to really consider because people that eat other diets to lose weight or get lean, it's kind of scary that what people prescribe, like people, someone last night at this course I'm taking was talking about how they drink bulletproof coffee and how their friend lost all this weight on the bulletproof diet when it's incredibly high in saturated fat like 50 to 70% is in saturated fat. Mm-hmm. Or you hear about people going on going keto so they can burn fat or on the paleo diet. And I think that people aren't thinking about the long-term effects of what they're actually doing to their body. Yeah. You might be losing weight, but at what cost? And yeah. I mean, what do people ask you about that most commonly? Yeah, well, I mean, you can lose weight on chemotherapy. It doesn't mean it's good for you. So I think people need to understand that we know a lot about nutrition. And one of the things we know is there's certain types of foods and certain components in foods that are really protective to human health and help to fight disease. And there are certain components that are harmful and that contribute to disease. And if you look at the list on both sides, it's really quite astonishing because on the side where the things that are protective, uh, we know fiber is protective, we know phytochemicals are protective, we know plant sterols and stanols are protective, of course, all the vitamins and minerals and those kinds of things, but, you know, antioxidants and a prebiotics and, uh, and probiotics. And the list goes on. But when you look at the total list of the things that are protective to human health, you know, we know fruits and vegetables. Everybody knows fruits and vegetables are protective. But when you look at the list, it's almost all of these compounds are found either exclusively or predominantly in plant foods. Uh, most of them exclusively phytochemicals. Most of the antioxidants are plant foods. Uh, the plant sterols and stanols, even the plant enzymes that help to convert phytochemicals into their bioactive forms. You know, you've just got, you go on and on the prebiotics are, these are all found exclusively in plant foods. And when you look at at the compounds that we know to be most harmful, you know, the trans fats and the, the saturated fats and the all of these products of oxidation and the environmental contaminants. And you've got the, you know, the carnitine that gets converted into TMAO and the, the new 5GC, which is a pro-inflammatory molecule in animal flesh. And, you know, you go on and on and on down this list, the sodium, excessive sodium, all the refined carbohydrates and sugars and so on. It's really two categories of foods we're talking about. We're talking about refined carbohydrates, which are essentially carbohydrates come from plants. But when you extract the carbohydrates and leave all the good stuff behind that we just talked about, and then you add a bunch of garbage like bad fats and sugar and salt and all the worst kinds of additives and preservatives and so forth, and then you eat these carbohydrates, they're no longer protective to human health. They're actually harmful. And the second category of foods is the animal products, where all the saturated fat and the new 5GC and the compounds that form TMAO and all of those things are found. And so that's the two, you know, back in 1990, the World Health Organization wrote, you know, a report on uh, to, to determine the strength of the link between diet and disease. 
And they said there are two categories of foods that are responsible for all of these chronic diseases, animal products and processed foods. We've known it for years and years. It's not rocket science. And so how do you uh, maximize all the protective components and minimize the harmful components? You know, whole food plant-based diets are really as good as it gets in terms of preventing disease and in terms of reversing diseases that are induced by diet and lifestyle choices. So, and it's not just diet, of course, it's exercise and it's how much you sleep and it's smoking and it's, you know, alcohol consumption. It's all of those things, stress and so forth. But diet's the kingpin. There is no debate about that. Diet is the kingpin where chronic diseases are concerned. We see athletes who drop dead of a heart attack because they've got severe atherosclerosis because they're eating garbage. And so I get very, very concerned when people start talking about diets that are very meat-centered and very high fat. And again, it's not the percentage of fat to me that matters so much. Again, in the blue zones, we've got some blue zones that actually eat quite high in fat, some that eat very, very low fat, like Okinawa. What matters is the sources of the macronutrients, the protein, fat, and carbohydrate. When they come from whole foods, mostly plants, as in every single blue zone, it's one of the common golden threads you weave through every blue zone, is they're all plant-based, every single one. You know, when you're eating that way, you're minimizing these potentially harmful compounds. It's that end of the spectrum where you're going to get a diet that's really the most powerful in reversing these diseases and, of course, preventing them. Now, what you need to know is that the more extreme and clean your diet becomes, the greater your risk for certain nutritional deficiencies. So like vitamin B12 and vitamin D and even iodine can be an issue when you're eating really, really clean. So you need to be conscious of those. But your ability to, you know, avoid and reverse diseases becomes really quite astonishing. As a matter of fact, I do research in the Marshall Islands. And what we see in the Marshall Islands is the highest rates of diabetes and death from diabetes on the planet. These people eat uh, refined carbohydrates and fatty meat, and that's their diet. And they wash the diet down with what we call lua, which is pure high fructose corn syrup. And uh, it's, you know, the number one ingredient and few food colors. And that's what they eat. They eat ramen noodles with Kool-Aid powder sprinkled on top. That's a kid's favorite snack. They eat white sticky rice with Spam or, or barbecued chicken. And you couldn't invent a diet or design a diet to induce diabetes any better than what these people have adopted. Well, 80 years ago, the people in the Marshall Islands didn't have any diabetes. It was non-existent. Uh, they lived off the land. And where people live off the land, they tend not to develop these chronic diseases, even if they're consuming some animal products in as they were eating some fish. And so we see that's another thing that I think is important to acknowledge is that is that there are, um, you know, in the blue zones, uh, four out of five blue zones actually do include some animal products, but it's a tiny portion of the total diet. They're eating mostly plants and the animal products they're eating, well, in Okinawa, they ate a half an ounce of fish a day on average, a half an ounce. Okay, that's for people doing metric, that's 15 grams. 
So it's nothing. It's this tiny, tiny portion. And so um, in the Marshall Islands, that's they ate plants and fish and they didn't get diabetes. And today they have the highest rates in the world. Well, the, the shocking thing when I first started doing work there is putting these people on a whole food plant-based diet and getting them to exercise. I couldn't believe what happened to them in a week or two. It was just absolutely shocking how much your body wants to heal itself. It desperately wants to be well. And so you start feeding it the right food and moving your body as it should be moved. Within a week, uh, the pains start to disappear. The blood sugar starts to normalize. Everything starts to get better and people are absolutely Done. I worked with a gentleman that I, I still, it's my favorite story. I love this story so much. I tell it often, but because this young man at 36 years of age was diagnosed with cancer and he was at a conference where I was speaking and he asked me after if I could help him to design a diet that would you know, really give him the best chance at beating this cancer. And I said, sure, with cancer, there are no guarantees. It's not like diabetes or heart disease where it's it's way easier to reverse the disease, I think, based on the information we have thus far, because maybe 35% or so of cancers are really diet-induced. Many are, you know, and have to do with the environment, have to do with smoking, have to do with lack of exercise, have to do with obesity, which is diet related, of course, as well. But anyway, this uh, getting back to my story here, I gave him a diet. And why I love this story is because his whole entire extended family said, you know, we're foodies, we eat together, it's what we do. Their former favorite pastime was eating the biggest steaks and drinking the $500 bottles of wine along with it. And they were really true foodies. And they said, whatever diet you're doing, we're doing with you. Wow, that's and, supportive. And it was unbelievable. I was just stunned. I, it makes me emotional just thinking about it because not very many families would no, do that. No, absolutely not. But the real story here is his father, Carlos, who was had been diagnosed with diabetes in 93, was on 40 units of insulin a day. This man was on 17 pills a day. He had peripheral oh. artery disease. He, had, he was going into renal failure. He had a super high, uncontrollable blood pressure. He had chronic gout. He had everything you can think of. I mean, he was really sick. He had just had a major heart attack. He had really high cholesterol, high triglycerides, you name it, he had it. And so he was being medically managed. And his doctors told him, you have progressive irreversible conditions. You have about two years to live. So get your affairs in order. You're going to be on dialysis soon. You're not going to survive long. Well, when Carlos went on the diet, he actually told his son, you know, son, you know, you think a lot of this diet, but I'm doing this to support you. It won't change anything for me because I have irreversible progressive conditions and there's nothing that I can do with my lifestyle to change that. Well, within, you know, six months, he was off most of his medications. Within a year, he was off all of his insulin, all of his medications, and every single thing he had reverted to normal. His blood pressure was 115 over 70. His kidney function was normal. His peripheral artery disease disappeared. Even the scar tissue on his heart, they did a PET scan, started to disappear. He was no longer needing any medication at all. And he went to his doctors and he said to his endocrinologist, like, why didn't you tell me this was possible just by changing the food I eat? You know, you told me I was going to die. And the doctor basically said, I didn't tell you it was possible because I didn't know 
it was possible. And that that is unfortunately the situation. A lot of physicians, medical schools aren't, they're starting, but 20, 30 years ago, doctors didn't learn a lot about lifestyle medicine. They're starting to. As a matter of fact, I spoke at a conference last year for physicians and uh, there were probably 800 physicians there. It was completely lifestyle medicine. I'm speaking at two this year. I just got back from speaking at one in Lithuania on lifestyle medicine. They did a whole conference on lifestyle medicine. And doctors, like the first year they did it, they had, I don't know, 50 people. Second year, it was maybe 100 or something. Last year, it was this time it was 400. It was the same with the lifestyle medicine in LA that I talked at this year. The first time around, it was barely anybody. Second year, it doubled. And third year, it was 800 plus doctors. So physicians are starting to catch on and really getting interested. And so that's very, very positive. And of course, medical schools have to catch up because we're, this is, it just makes so much sense. It would save the governments just literally billions of dollars if people, if physicians, instead of writing a prescription for a pharmaceutical, could actually write a prescription for a lifestyle treatment program. Now, the problem is, is I think for most people, and this is just my own two cents worth, but I think for most people, what's more important than anything in life, practically, is a feeling like you belong within your tribe. Eat with your family, you can do things with the people you love and care about. And so they would almost rather die or not live as long and healthy of a life rather than be outside of that circle of people that are absolutely vital to them. And so until our culture shifts, it can be challenging for people to step outside of that circle. But if you can, you know, help the whole circle to move in the right direction. And I think we do that with love and with sharing our food and letting people taste how wonderful it is. Yeah, I love inviting friends over and fortunately they're flexible enough to eat what I'm making and they always know if they're going to Sonia's they're going to eat some plant-based food. But what's happened like 99% of the time is they've said, wow, this is so flavorful. This is amazing. What is this cookbook? What's this recipe? And they go buy the cookbook and they start eating out of that cookbook. And that's awesome. It's great to be able to share that with people and also knowing that without even going into the science behind it and just knowing that they can find a pleasure in eating the food. And then if they want to know more about it, I'll tell them, well, actually you're saving your life by eating this way. And I've lost the taste completely for meats and cheeses and and things like that. Like it just doesn't taste good anymore. And I was afraid it's hard to change your diet because you are attached to these things. Well, like I love people say, I love my cheese. I love my eggs. But once you stop eating those things, and also once you start feeling so much better in your body, you don't want those things anymore. No, you don't. Yeah. And if you're in a compromising situation, like we were on a cruise for my husband's work last week and two of our friends recently changed their diet to plant-based in January. Wow. And on that cruise, they were eating a little bit of animal products. And when they got home, they said, oh, I'm so happy to be home and I'm so happy to be eating the food that I want to make because it's hard whenever you're traveling to make it work sometimes. And I think for me, I I just have to change my expectations that the food's going to be amazing. Sometimes you're just going to be eating like brown rice, beans, and some greens, and just have to accept that when you're used to eating really beautiful food at home that you make. Yeah, exactly. 
And the thing is, is your body, it's funny how I find the thing that I crave most when I'm away from home is greens. I do too. Like yeah. I just can't seem to get enough <laughs> greens. And so your body changes. It can change even your desire for sweet things. It, things just, when you re-educate your palate, I think the one thing that everybody has to understand, talk to almost anyone who eats this way, none of us will say we enjoy our food less than we used to. I think most of us will say we actually enjoy our food more. We appreciate real flavors of whole foods now. And it's not like you're depriving yourself. I make cheesecake with nut cheeses. I make turtle, you know, I people uh, sometimes say, oh, I used to love those, you know, turtle, Cadbury turtle, whoever makes those turtles with the chocolate and the caramel inside and the pecans on the bottom. Well, I invent some <laughs> some turtles. My caramel is made from pine nuts and dates and a little vanilla and it looks like caramel. It tastes like caramel. It's so good. My relatives were just shocked. There's no sugar. There's no butter. There's no none of that stuff. So you start to learn how to make really fabulous tasting food uh, using whole foods. It's really quite shocking. So anyway, it's and it's fun. It's an adventure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, something that I love about your book is that you have tons of different resources and you cite studies. And one of the ones that really struck a chord with me was the World Health Organization's report every 10 years on cancer. And I was reading about alcohol in your book and you had quoted the World Health Organization. So that night I looked up the study and there was actually a new one that had been published at the time. So I sat on the couch and it was about 500 pages and I read oh, like a third of it. Wow. But it was amazing to just see over and over and over that processed meats are class one carcinogen, but also that alcohol is really bad for us. And for me, I love beer and I love wine and it was something, it was a hard pill to swallow that, wow, there's no safe level of alcohol in terms of cancer prevention. Yeah. And just to clarify, Sonia, it's actually the World Cancer, World cancer. Research Thank you. Fund and the American Institute of Cancer Research that did, you know, these huge, what they did was pull together a hundred plus scientists from, I think, 30 different countries to literally go through with a fine tooth comb all of the evidence we have looking at diet and cancer, the connection between diet and cancer. And they came up with a series of recommendations to reduce cancer risk. And, and they have something we call CUP, or the Continuous Update Project, which is a, an independent group of scientists that continues to give updates on their findings. The last one was done in 2007. So we continue to receive these fantastic updates. And so that you can go on to the World Cancer Research Fund website and you know, find that information or the American Institute of Cancer Research. But there are two recommendations that have anything to do with plant and animal foods. And with plant foods, it's eat mostly plant foods. And the one with animal foods is to, I think, reduce or reduce red meat and eliminate processed meat, something like that. And they basically say no more than 500 grams of red meat per week and, and little, if any, should be processed red meat. Because as you mentioned, red meat now, the World Health Organization 
declared processed meat a group 1A human carcinogen and or a group 1 human carcinogen and red meat is a group 2A human carcinogen. And so that was a particular report was a statement from the World Health Organization. And so for me, looking at that, knowing how harmful processed meat is, not just for cancer, but for diabetes, it increases the risk massively for heart disease. And when we talk about processed meats, we're talking about bacon and ham and sausage and pepperoni and salami lunch and meat. lunch meat. Yeah, all of that stuff is all processed meat. And a lot of these people doing paleo, they say that, you know, grass-fed, free-range, whatever meat, but I see a lot of them eating a ton of processed meat. They eat bacon and ham and all that stuff. This stuff is really harmful. It's, you know, to label something a group one carcinogen is, you know, we're looking at things like smoking, cigarettes and asbestos and, you know, that kind of stuff. This is really harmful. And when I see, you know, the cancer organizations doing their hot dog sales to raise money for cancer, it just, to me, it would be like them selling cigarettes to raise money for cancer. It's just inexcusable. It's, I just don't get it. But I think that people need to know that this really, these meats should not be part of people's diets. And red meat, um, not as much evidence against unprocessed red meat as processed. But if you look at all of the meta-analyses that have been done in the last four or five years for mortality, for heart disease, for diabetes, for cancer, every single one shows a positive association with both red meat and processed meat. They're just highly, highly consistent. And so it's, you know, stronger relationship with processed meat, but still a strong relationship with red meat as well. And so I think people are playing with fire with paleo. And now that we're on the topic of paleo, I, th I want to share just one little thing that I think is really interesting. You know, when all of this hoopla about paleo came out, everybody at my gym, especially the instructors, were all doing paleo. And I, you know, the thing that goes through my mind is paleo diets are very high in meat, which means more animals have to die. And, you know, and, and for those that don't care about the animals, well, it's just for me, it's a personal thing. I just, I don't want to see more factory farms. And uh, so I get concerned when people are tripling their meat intake. And I thought to myself, this can't be, it's not good for animals. It's definitely not good for the environment. And, uh, and if they think free range is, you know, the way to go, free range meat is actually has a higher carbon footprint than a uh, feedlot meat. So from an ecological perspective, but they need to understand from a health perspective as well, that what they think is paleo is not paleo. So what I did when I was looking at it, I thought, okay, I need to understand this thing really well. So I went and did searches for nutritional anthropology. And what I found was two studies that gave probably the best estimates of what Paleolithic peoples actually consumed way back when. And the first one came out in 1997, I think, and the second one, 2010. And the first one was by Boyd Eaton and Melvin Connor, and the second one was by Melvin Connor and Boyd Eaton. So they just swapped who was the senior author. And what was really interesting about these, when I started looking at them, there were a few things that just, you know, just shocked me when I saw them. And the first was that they were estimating fiber intakes at between, for people eating paleo diets, 
between 70 and 150 grams a day. I don't know many vegans that eat 70 grams of fiber a day. I think I'm close to 70 a day. People that eat four or 5,000 calories might be close to 70, 80 grams a day. But I'll tell you, I don't know of anybody eating a paleo diet that gets anywhere close to 70 to 150 grams of fiber a day. Then the other things I noticed were vitamin C was estimated around five or 600 milligrams. Well, where does vitamin C come from? Fruits and vegetables. The average paleo person, not even close. The average vegan, maybe half that. And then I looked at um, the other thing, potassium, which again, mainly plant foods, uh, they were estimating seven to 10,000 milligrams a day. The average vegan around 4,500. So these people were eating a truckload of plants. There was just no question. So the paleo people today, they try to match really closely that 30% of calories from protein that paleo people ate. They ate about 30% of calories from protein because they were eating wild animals that had hardly any fat and wild plants. And so the balance, they ended up with about 30% of calories from protein. Well, for people to get 30% of calories from protein on today's meat, they've got to eat a lot of fat because you know we're looking at 10, maybe 15% of calories from uh, fat in wild animals. We're looking at 40 or 50 or 60% from our domestic animals, even free range animals. So there's just no comparison. So it changes things a lot. So what shocks me is, is the total, all paleo people care about is matching that protein. They don't even think about trying to match the fiber or the vitamin C or the potassium because uh, they would have to be vegan if they were going to try to match those things uh, or pretty close to it. So the way that I look at it is that, you know, we have to start as human beings looking at the bigger picture. If everyone on this planet ate paleo, we would need an estimated, and this was an estimate made by Dr. David Katz, who is a world-renowned uh, nutrition expert, and he basically said we would need 15 planets to sustain the current population if everyone ate paleo, based on what we need as a hunter-gatherer in terms of land. We slaughter about 70 billion animals every year, not including anything from the sea, just land animals. So what would we triple that? Where would they come from? Where would the land come from? We're already using a third of the land mass we have to grow animals. We're destroying the planet doing that. We're raping the oceans. You know, we've got, what, 90% plus of large predatory fish have been wiped out. As experts are estimating by 2048, all of the uh, fish stocks that we're eating right now will be gone. We'll, we'll be relying solely on fish farms and we know what that costs. Um, we have got to start recognizing that we've got to look at how do we eat in a way that will sustain the entire population of this planet for our children and for our grandchildren. We're sure as hell not gonna do that on a paleo diet. And so it's not just about me, myself, and I. It's about everyone and every creature and every living thing and about preserving the planet for many generations. And, you know, I just, it kills me because I know. My son, you know, he went to university doing environmental sciences. He doesn't want to have kids because he said, I can't bring children into a world that has so little future at the rate we're going right now. I just, I don't want to do that. I'm scared for them. 
Uh, this is not good. We've got to start making more responsible decisions. And I know every single one of us could, could do that. I could do that. I could be living in a smaller home or, you know, I'm riding my bike more or whatever the case may be. But we've, our diets are the number one, you know, gosh, the United Nations said, um, there are two things that humans do that, that are causing the demise of the environment that are really responsible. Um, number one, animal agriculture, number two, fossil fuels. And, you know, animal agriculture, the National Academy of Sciences in the United States put out a paper last year that said that if everyone on this planet ate the way the World Health Organization says we should be eating less animals, more plants, just a healthier diet, less overconsumption, we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 by 29%. But if everyone went vegan, we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 70%. The National Academy of Sciences said what everybody needs to do is to shift towards a plant-based diet. That was the same as what the United Nations Environmental Program said. A global shift towards a plant-based diet is what we need, not a global shift towards a paleo diet. So I think we just really need to wake up and look at what's happening from a bigger perspective. Yeah, I mean, when I changed my diet, I was more interested in the health implications. But then mm -hmm. I started looking a little bit more into the environmental stuff. I used to be a solar engineer and I was I'd ride my bike everywhere and I hardly use my car. And I'd always try to buy organic food. But it wasn't until recently when I watched Cowspiracy <laughs> that I realized, wow, this is I, I didn't realize that the number one cause of greenhouse gases and our world becoming a worse place was animal agriculture yeah. and the links that some of these companies would go to quiet the message. And yeah. even in Brazil, the guy said, oh, well, people get murdered when they come out here. Yeah, exactly. That That's terrifying. Yeah. And then I also watched a documentary recently, What the Health, and this goes back to what you were saying yes. about them serving hot dogs at, at cancer, <laughs> cancer fundraisers. I was taken aback. I was actually so mad that I was in tears that all of these, or not all, but a lot of the cancer associations are sponsored by meat and dairy companies. And then these cancer associations recommend that people eat food that is classified as class one carcinogen. They say, eat this food. But these are organizations that are supposed to be giving guidance to people who have cancer. Yeah. And yet they're telling them to eat things that are going to make their case even worse or even make them take them out of remission and make the cancer come back. It's yeah, incredible. It's, yeah, it's uh, very, very sad. And for people that haven't seen Cowspiracy, it's very well worth watching. And so is What the Health is the newest one. And it's worth watching too. It's uh, Actually, there was a couple from Penticton. Uh, we're in Kelowna, which Penticton is very close by, that were featured in that film. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's kind of neat. Uh, but again, it's very interesting. And I want to bring up the point about alcohol that you raised as well, because, you know, there's so much controversy about, or I guess, conflicting opinions about if alcohol is bad or good in terms of a heart disease risk, a little bit of red wine and diabetes and so forth. And I think what people need, they need to be very clear that there is no amount of alcohol intake that you can, no amount of intake that will not increase your risk of cancer. 
So just to be very aware of that, especially if you're already in a high risk category, you know, the, the phytochemicals uh, you get from red wine, for example, you can get by eating fruits and vegetables rather than alcohol. Not to say that you can't enjoy a glass of wine once in a while, but I think we need to be really clear that it really does contribute to uh, cancer risk significantly. Yeah, that was definitely a wake up call. And yeah. then I looked further into it and it was, is it acetaldehyde? So you even just holding it in your mouth and spitting it out, your, your, is it your saliva creates acetaldehyde and then you swallow it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a hard one for me to change what I'm doing, but I'm working yeah. on, I've greatly reduced my intake of alcohol. Yeah. And I'm toying with the idea of not drinking anymore, but yeah, it's just... You know, even if people just save it for the special occasion, have, you know, your like, this is what I do, okay? And my it drives my brother insane because he has a 640 bottle wine cellar in his house and he's very conscious of, you know, he's a wine connoisseur, I guess. And um, so what I will do once in a while, if we're having a toast or something and it's a special fat, I'll put an ounce of wine in my glass and the rest I use a soda water. <laughs> you put the soda water into the wine? Into the wine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is not looked upon favorably no. by wine connoisseurs. No, no, it is not. So you have just, you can still have a pink sparkling whatever, but anyway, and I much prefer the taste that way. <laughs> I don't really like the taste of wine that much, so it works for me really well. But uh, people can just have the soda water. But if you really like wine, to me, it's just not something you should do every day. Something that you do on a very special occasion if you do it. Yeah, like for me, one of my sponsors is a winery, Michael David Winery in California. And their red wines are so amazing. But it's basically made me consume less of it. Just like if somebody's trying to slowly change their diet to a primarily plant-based diet, they can start eating just less meat and less dairy That's and right. see how you feel and see yeah. how it goes. And if you eat a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less, it reduces your risk of bad things happening to you and to the environment. And I think the same is true with alcohol. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's not an all or nothing. People don't have to feel bad if they can't do it all at once. Because, you know, when you start, I find that you might start with trying to figure out replacements for dairy. You know, what are you going to like in your cereal if you're used to cow's milk? So then you have to start experimenting. It takes a while to find the one that you feel like, I really like this. Uh, it's the same with cheeses. Or if you, now there's like Miyoko's Creamery and there's a lady in Ireland that's doing some cheese on Vancouver Island, I think it is, that's doing some lovely fermented cheeses. And so there are a number of good options. They're quite expensive. So I tend to just make my own, but that all takes time to learn how to do that and to figure all that out. And then you start with the meat and you say, well, what am I going to have? You know, how can I make this dish that I loved without, you know, meat? And you start experiment. It all takes time and you do transition slowly. For most people, that works really well because you just have to learn how to prepare these things that are a little different than before. 
Yeah. And even just doing less, like some people say, I can't ever get rid of meat or dairy completely. And if they reduce it to maybe 10% of their diet or even 5% of their diet, like you mentioned in the blue zones, some of them, they have a very small portion, That's right. but you have to take personal responsibility to make sure that you're enforcing that because it would be easy to say, okay, I'm going to eat a little bit. And then you just kind of landslide back in your old habits. Yeah. And some people, what they find works for them is they pick what's most difficult for them to give up. So they just love a certain type of fish or it's salmon or whatever. And so that'll be the one animal product they'll leave in their diet or the yogurt at breakfast. They just can't part with their yogurt at breakfast. So they'll have, you know, an organic yogurt or something like that. And I think that's a really reasonable compromise. It's not like there's this exclusive club that you have to be absolutely pure. It's, you know, this isn't about personal purity. It's a really about trying to make this world a better place, trying to make our bodies healthier, trying to, you know, do all of those wonderful things. And and I think it's, um, we don't, I, I, I really don't want people to feel like they won't belong if they don't do it all the way. We're, I think, celebrating every step that people take in the right direction. And that's what really, you know, what really matters. Yeah. I have one last (laughs) question for you. You bet. Um, So there's been a lot of talk about intermittent fasting. Yes. And okay, number one, it's going to starve the bad bacteria in your gut. And maybe with detoxes, it's the same thing. You take stuff out, you're not feeding those bacteria in your gut and the cravings for sugar or whatever go away. And then also in Ayurveda, the idea of giving your digestive system a break and all the energy in your digestive, the energy being contributed to digestion a break so you can have the energy elsewhere in your life. I personally have never tried fasting. I don't know any of the science behind it. So I figured you would be the best person to ask about it. You know, I it's definitely not my area of expertise, but I'll tell you what I do know is I think intermittent fasting um, can be very valuable for people who um, it works for. (laughs) And I have a few friends who say it has changed their ability to maintain their weight tremendously. So they struggled with this 15 or 20 pounds for years and years and all of a sudden started to do one fasting day. And, And some of them, they do juice fast. So they do green juice all day. So they'll do a you know, a quart of green juice or more two quarts or something, and they'll drink green juice during the day. And they say it just has helped tremendously with that. And I say, if it works for you, it's probably, especially if you're doing a juicing, you're getting all these antioxidants and you're not completely starving yourself. It's probably not a terrible thing. But for me personally, I'm like you, Sonia, I just like eating. <laughs> and I like exercising. And I think if I wasn't eating all day, it would be hard to do my fitness. And so I believe, this is what I believe, that if you're eating a really healthy whole food plant-based diet, you don't need to do these intermittent fasting. Your gut flora is going to be great. Your system has a way of cleansing itself when you're putting the right stuff in there. So I don't think it's necessary. On the other hand, for people that have very severe disease, 
Have you ever heard of True North? Yes, I definitely have. <laughs> yeah. So True North is a place where people go and they are they're medically supervised fasts, either water fasts or juice fasts. They do both, but they have medical doctors and a team of health practitioners that helps them to get well. And, and I think in that case, especially with things like arthritis, for example, unbelievable stuff happens when you do a fast and give your body a little, little break from all the stuff that's probably making your arthritis a lot worse. And so they have tremendous success. They reintroduce food there quite slowly and they start people back on a very whole food plant-based diet, a very clean whole food plant-based diet. And so I think it can work from a medical perspective unbelievably well, but I wouldn't do an extended fast without medical supervision. You know, certainly two or three days, not a big deal, but to do, they do sometimes two, three, four weeks. And so that you would definitely need to be very carefully monitored at a place that had physicians with the ability to do blood work on a regular basis. So True North is the one I trust. And I know they do amazing work and they're actually publishing in peer-reviewed journals and such. So I, I have a lot of confidence in them and I would say that's a really reasonable place to go. Yeah, yeah. And I was reading a book on detox and I was reading the foods that it recommends that you eat and the foods it recommends you don't eat. And the, the whole point is to remove toxins from your body and toxins yeah. are stored in the fat. But a plant-based diet is basically everything that it's it recommends you to exactly. eat in a detox. And your yeah. liver is in, in charge of detoxing your body on a daily basis. And yeah. if you're eating plant-based foods, specifically cruciferous vegetables, you're yeah. going to be providing your liver with the best support possible. So yeah. instead of having to go on this restrictive detox or fast, if you could just even say, hey, well, instead of the detox or the fast, maybe for two weeks, I'll commit to eating a whole foods plant-based diet. So I still get to eat food and I don't have to worry about my training and see how you feel, I think that is a much better alternative. Per that's just my opinion, but I think that's a better alternative to fasting or whatever, yeah, to detoxing I, yeah, for the average person. I completely person. agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thanks so much. I, you were just in Saudi Arabia too, weren't you? Yeah, I was in Saudi Arabia in uh, last month, and then I was home for about four days, then I was in Lithuania. And I mentioned about the Lithuania thing. That was a they actually did their second or third lifestyle medicine conference uh, with physicians. And also I did some teaching at the medical school on lifestyle medicine and that they have that lifestyle medicine masters there. And then at another university that has a lifestyle program. So it was, and not only that, I kind of feel guilty that I'm not doing the same advocacy at home, but I will. I mean, we need to be doing this They, they we actually met with their minister of health. We had a press conference. We did you know, and the Minister of Health is so on board. He is all in a hundred percent behind lifestyle medicine. So it's very exciting there. And I think they're going to be the sort of example for Europe in lifestyle medicine, which is very, very exciting. So I, I really had a wonderful time there. And then the Saudi Arabia, which was right before that, uh, it was quite the little story. <laughs> So what happened was, if you're familiar, I think most people are familiar with Dr. Michael Greger, who wrote How Not to Die. And um, this Saudi Arabian prince, his name is Prince Al-Walid. He's a very big philanthropist and one of the 20 richest people in the world. 
he owns a company called Kingdom Holdings. And so he owns Citibank in the United States and, and many Four Seasons and Radisson Hotels and so forth. But also tremendously generous with, he gives massive amounts of money to people, women every week who come to share their stories. He just gives wow. them. And men, uh, like five or 600 of them every once a month, they come and he just gives, gives and gives and gives. So he's very, very generous. But his son, Prince Khalid, is a hardcore vegan. <laughs> and like animal rights, environmental, all of that stuff. And he is just very, very cool. <laughs> he's a really, really interesting young man. And he purchased Michael's book and purchased a copy for his dad and gave his dad this book. And so his dad got quite interested and started conversation with Michael. And he said, you know, he wanted a dietitian and him to, you know, help him. And so Michael referred him to me. And so we both started doing a little bit with the prince. And, and then he invited us to come to Saudi Arabia to do a consult, personal consult for him, but also to do consults for his staff and to do lectures wow. for his staff. And so it was one of those experiences that I will never forget. I bet not. <laughs> <laughs> because we were, like, we arrived in Saudi Arabia. We were met, we were brought into this Four Seasons Hotel, which his office is the 66th floor of this <laughs> hotel. And then he has an apartment above that, which is, like, could fit, I don't know, a couple hundred people, I think. But anyway, we were brought there, and we had one hour upon our arrival to make ourselves presentable to the prince. And so Michael and I figured we'd have rooms right side by side and we'd be talking and doing, well, no, no, nothing like that happens in Saudi Arabia. I got taken to this floor, I think the 48th floor or something, where there's someone at a desk waiting that takes you to another elevator to bring you to the women's floor. Oh yeah, So that's if right. you're on your own, <laughs> There, That's there, right. it, you, men cannot get into that floor. There is no way, no how. Whoa. <laughs> so it's such a different culture. It was yeah. very interesting. And once you get to that floor, then you can remove your abaya, you know, mm -hmm. these robes that you have mm -hmm. to wear. And, you know, that's just, and there's an exercise room and everything. Did they give you the robe? Like, how did you know to wear the robe? Well, I didn't. I didn't even have one when I arrived, but I was presented one very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> There's one in the room, in every hotel room for women, but also the prince ordered one for me, even though it's interesting because he's very progressive with women. Over half his staff are women, his pilots, the only female pilot in Saudi Arabia, and none of the women working for him wear any headscarves, any abaya, nothing. Hmm. They're in regular, you know, like what we would wear. And so very, very interesting. And even when I was going outside where everybody has to have an abaya to get into his limo to go to the palace or to, go to, the, yeah, to go to the palace or to go to the <laughs> desert retreat or wherever we were going, he would say, don't wear that. He didn't want me to wear the abaya. He said, you're with me. You don't need an abaya. Wow. Yeah. And so that was quite interesting, I thought. Obviously, he's just very, very progressive, and he's definitely 
really on board with trying to further women's rights in Saudi Arabia. So I thought that was very interesting too. But we did, you know, the lectures, we went to a couple palaces, we spent um, a good afternoon, evening with Prince Khalid as well. We went to the desert retreat. He has a hundred camels. I got to ride oh. a camel and all these things. And they had a whole bunch of newborn baby camels that were just oh. like a day or two old. Oh, it was they're so, so cute. cute. But it was interesting because when you're in the limo, there's a car in front, there's a car behind, there's all of that. You know, it, you just see what it's like to live like that for a few days and it was really quite something. Michael and I also did a TV show. That's how we ended up up in his apartment above his business floor. And it was really fun to be interviewed on TV. And of course he asked if I would like to go shopping at one point, he sent one of the ladies to go shopping and I didn't have to have a man with me. Hmm. But, and they used to, it used to be that way, but it's not that way anymore. And then in the mall, I didn't go into the mall. That day, I just went to see the museum and a couple of more, sort of the traditional shops. And then the last night I was there, I went into a mall just to see what it was like. Well, there's no change rooms in any of the places because women can't get changed if there's men on the floor. Whoa. Even. So Whoa. there's a separate floor for women where those stores actually have change rooms, but the men cannot get onto that floor. Wow. So it's very different. That is very so different. You know, as you travel around the world, and I have such a privilege to be able to do that with the work that I do, you get such an appreciation for other cultures and how they are, and you get very appreciative of what we have here and the beauty that surrounds us here and all of that. So it was very wonderful, exciting experience. And I may be going back next year, Michael and I both, because uh, they're going to be doing a lifestyle medicine conference. And I don't even know if I should say this in public, but this was kind of the one of the moments I just couldn't believe in my life is the people, the doctors organizing this conference in Saudi Arabia contacted me to see if I could put them in touch with the royal family so that maybe the royal family could work with them on this lifestyle medicine wow. conference. And I contacted Prince Khalid and within an hour I heard back from him and they were both so excited to make the connection. I just can't believe I was able to connect the doctors. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, You're like I know people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was pretty funny. But anyway, I feel very privileged and very honored to be a part of that whole movement there and to think of what's happening and the doctors that are interested and the royal family that's interested. It's very exciting. So it's all good. Oh, that's a really cool opportunity. I'm sure that won't be the last. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> now, well, if you have one last nugget to share with people, what would that be? A, a takeaway message? Oh, I guess the biggest thing is just to do what you can to make healthier choices for you and your family and for the planet and for the animals. And it doesn't have to be all at once, as we said, but just to try to educate yourself. And you know, there are so many conferences happening in almost every city across North America that bring in really interesting speakers that you could get to watch these films, because this is one of the best ways to educate yourself. There's so many good films now 
just uh, the people that did Cowspiracy just came out with one on on diet and health, I believe. I haven't seen it yet. But uh, every little tiny step you take in the right direction is really worth taking. And also these books that I've written, Becoming Vegan, both the Comprehensive and Express Editions, even if you're not vegan, <laughs> they have the kind of information that will help you feel confident in making this shift. Any questions about, you know, essential amino acids or do I need fish for fish oil or how do I get calcium without cow's milk? All of those questions are really looked at in detail in these resources. So, And what's yeah. the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they want to? Through my website is really the best way. It's brendadavisrd.com. And uh, you can get the books from Amazon or wherever. Cool. I'll put links to everything in the oh, show notes great. so everybody has access to oh, it. Thanks, but Sonia. thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and, and your world that. travels to stop by for a chat. Yeah, so nice to meet you. Yeah, thank no, you so much for oh, having me. Hopefully, we can have you back on after your next trip to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. I hope so. All right. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. That was just so much fun with Brenda. I really didn't want it to end. She's one of those people that I could talk with all day. And I'm still thinking about those turtles that she was saying that she made. I really want to go raid her kitchen and eat what she makes. I hope today's podcast answered some of those questions that you might have had. Or maybe you just want to make some small changes to get healthier. But whatever the reason, I'm glad that I could bring this resource to you. And if you want to talk about plant-based nutrition or anything like that, feel free to contact me. Check out Brenda's website. There's so many amazing resources and such a great community out there that supports this way of life. All right, so time to get back to the bike and we'll see you next time. And as always, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends, share on social media. Let's get this out there. And hey, if you guys have any specific questions or there's a type of guest that you'd really like to see, send me a message and let me know because this podcast is for you guys. I wish you all the best success in your training and all of your adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>